Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. It's not every day you get to talk to a former top five ATP player in the world, and that was the opportunity I got in today's interview when we sat down with former ATP world number five, seven-time Grand Slam quarterfinalist, three-time Davis Cup champion, 12 ATP career singles titles to his name, uh, Tommy Robredo, who joined us from his home in Spain to talk about his career and some of those highlights, the the different things that happened to him when you go through the course of... of a 20-year professional career, and we talk about his time against, you know, seeing the ascension of Federer and Nadal and what that did for the game, talk about for him what it's like to be playing Challenger Tour events now after spending years at the 250 level and above on the ATP Tour, how physically and mentally taxing it is, you know, his generation of Spanish players, who was the guy he matched up best with, the toughest matchups for him, all of that and more. It's a really fun interview that I hope you guys stick around to listen to. There is, I'm not going to say technical difficulties, but the audio quality is a little spotty at time, but still, when you get Tommy Robredo on the podcast, you play that podcast in. So before we get to that interview, I want to just let you guys know of a couple other things going on right now at Cracked Rackets. I'm sure at this point, You're all sick of hearing it, but if you haven't, go check out our YouTube channel. It's, you know, again, I think it's what I I do this now every podcast. It's like 16 clicks if you include typing in Cracked Rackets into the search bar. You find it. You subscribe to the channel. You won't miss any of our other content moving forward. Things like overserved uh, our look at all the comedy that happens week in week out day in day out uh, on the ATP and WTA tours our CR classics looking at some of the best matches in tennis history episode two coming out this week Uh, what else do we have going on I mean all of our interviews turned into video podcasts that and more all found on our YouTube channel so please go give that a look go subscribe to that and of course if you've missed any of our cracked interviews from the week you can find them on this channel mini breaks great shot podcasts going as well we're five days a week on the mini break still. If we can provide any of you guys 30, 45 minutes to escape from the difficulties of this time period right now for all of us, just escape back into your tennis world, then we'll be doing our job. So please go check out those other podcasts, like, rate, subscribe, review to that with uh, review them, share them with your friends. Be on the lookout. We're going to have another fun giveaway in the works coming up. I think we're announcing that next week, if not next week, uh, certainly in sometime soon. So if you want to put your review up there now, that's... That will certainly be one of the qualifications for qualifying you for our next giveaway. So just throw your review up there now. Get ahead of the curb. You don't want Hudson Hatfield to take another lead in one of these giveaways. You want to get yourself a chance to win some free gear. So be on the lookout for all of that. And of course, if you've missed any of our content, be sure to go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. But enough with the plugs. You came here for an interview. So with that, let's get to my conversation with former ATP world number five, Tommy Robredo. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us now on the Cracked Interviews podcast, he is a seven-time major quarterfinalist, three-time Davis Cup champion, and the winner of 12 career ATP singles titles. Tommy Robredo, welcome to the show. How are you doing? All right. Thank you. You? Uh, I'm doing well. Again, no complaints. Uh, Better and better every time we get to do these interviews because I'm like, finally, I get to talk to someone who's not in my house. It's a good way to talk to somebody. Yeah, exactly. Um, But, you know, I have, you know, it's rare that we get the chance to talk to a former top five player, a guy who has, you know, been around the game and succeeded for so long. But my first question is a little bit off topic. I know you may not be a big video game player, but I want you to know when I was growing up, one of my favorite games to play was Top Spin 2. And we had a rule in our house. You can't play with Federer. You can't play with Nadal. You have to play with someone else. So I would always find myself playing with Tommy Robredo and so I guess my question to you is is it cool to have yourself in a video game was that something you saw ever you know maybe played with and you know in terms of career accomplishments that's got to rank up there right yeah obviously it's it's great you know that uh, a video game or a brand wants you to be part of the of the image and being there it's it's amazing no I'm not a really good fan of the video games I prefer to play table games or or just chat with people or whatever but but anyway to hear that somebody was uh, playing with me it's a huge honor <laughs> well no but again the honor in this entire podcast will continue to be mine and i guess to get to a more you know serious topics your career started in 1998 and at this point I, I know you haven't played in 2020 but it sounds like you have you yet to retire it's something you want to go back out there and keep playing what is the motivation for you at this point to continue to go out on tour to continue to grind even if it's at the challenger tour now as opposed to at 250 500 masters events well i like the sport i like the game uh, and i love my job so uh, i'm not uh, i know when i wake up in the mornings i I really want to go practice and i really want to go and play a match in a tournament so that's what it gives me the motivation the day i will stop uh, loving it then i will think about uh, quitting it but uh, but for the moment I, I really like it and yeah I'm gonna keep doing it it till I have something that it uh, I know uh, fills my tongue of energy of uh, any other motivations yeah and look you continue to play at an excellent level if I could hit the ball like you I would play <clears throat> as frequently as possible I am curious though uh, you know, at this point in your game, you talk about your love. Of it. Are there things you get frustrated with with your own performances? How has your own level of play changed? And you know, how have you adapted to maybe the things your body can't or can't do anymore? Well, obviously, physically, like the game, it's it's different now. No? The people fix the ball harder, and I, I think that the balls are a little bit heavier than what it was in the past. So it, it didn't help me at all. But, but anyway, um, obviously, I'm not as fit as I was. I'm not as uh, fast as I was. 
and I lost confidence because I was losing a lot of matches on the last uh, couple of years. So, so that's um, a big uh, rock on the foot, no? But, but anyway, uh, I will try to to come back to get uh, physically perfect and and to go to the court again and and try one more time. Mm-hmm. And for you. Is it different being at these Challenger Tour events? It's obviously less of a scale than the ATP Tour. Does that affect your, you know, is it is it almost a more pure form of the sport? You're just out there at these, you know, these courts and playing just these matches as opposed to the spectacle of the Tour lifestyle? Well, obviously, it's a little bit different. There is less spectators, less uh, media, but the players are great anyway, so... A lot of players that they are on the challenges, they can go to the ATP Tour and, and win a lot of matches. So uh, obviously there is not the top guys, no, but but there is a lot of guys that they go to the 250s, 500s, and they win tournaments. They they do great. So the level is is amazing on challenger. I think that it grow up on the last uh, three, four, five years, and that's also why it's it's taking me so so much time to try to come back. Mm-hmm. Do you think, and again, this is sort of a random question, but you are playing your, let's say, 26-year-old self, and you know exactly how to break him down. You know all of his weaknesses. What's your score with 26-year-old Tommy Robredo right now? Myself against a 26-year-old Tommy Robredo. You think you could take him? Maybe one day, yes, <laughs> or <laughs> in a sport, you never know. If you start pretty good, you can win anyone. You know? So, if, if if you do great at the beginning, the other is not at, at his best. But anyway, obviously, right now I'm 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 worse physically, I'm worse mentally because of the losses that I had in the past. But I know a lot more about tennis because obviously I I play more and I, and I learn a lot more. So. I know there is some advantage and some things that it doesn't help, no. But obviously, the Tommy Robredo of 26 years old was much better than the one it's right now. No, oh, he was an incredible player. You still are, obviously. But uh, to go back in time a little bit, talk about some of your career highlights. As I mentioned, that 2006 season where you reached a career high of number five in the ATP singles rankings. And, you know, I was looking it up. And between 2001 and 2010, I think you played an average of something like 25 ATP events a season. And that's obviously a ton of tennis to put on your body uh, for you why was you know playing as frequently as possible your strategy? Not as frequently as possible, but playing that many events, uh, your strategy as opposed to maybe scaling back and you know pacing yourself each year. Well, obviously, I was doing the calendar that I thought it was the best one, no? And and obviously, when you start making the calendar, you go to Australia. You have to play one tournament or two before to prepare for the Australian Open. Then after that, you want to go to South America to play some tournaments on play. So you are not going to go only for one. So you go and you play two or three. The end is Indian Wells and Miami. So it's it's obligation to go. Then Monte Carlo, Barcelona. The play season is there with Madrid, Rome, Paris, uh, and then Wimbledon. You have to play one tournament before. Then it's Cincinnati, Montreal, or Toronto, and the US Open. So this... Two weeks you have to play, the week in the middle, maybe yes, not. And then the Grand Slam, and then you want to go to, to Asia. So more or less, you are in, in, in a race that um, you are playing because there is a lot of tournaments to play. So 
So maybe if I will have to choose right now, I will skip some of that tournament to prepare better physically and to relax. But but anyway, uh, when when I was there and or when all of the players we are there, we always want to play more because we want more points. We want to be better on the rankings, and that gives me give us a lot of uh, I don't know motivation, energy. But also sometimes it's it's, it's worse. But we, we never know when when we were there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that 2006 season, you were making, obviously, all of the right decisions. Semifinals at Cincinnati, semifinals in Paris. You win in Hamburg and qualify for the World Tour Finals that season. You know, what did that accomplishment mean to you? Particularly, I think you were still, what, 25, 26 at the time. To make that stage uh, that early in your career, what did that mean for you? Well, uh, being in a Masters Cup is something that is uh, amazing because... If you finish one year, 10 in the world is, is great, but there is not a price, you know. And when, when, when you go to the Masters, it's like there is only a couple of guys that they are allowed to go to the Masters. And if you are one of them, it's like that you arrive to the, to the end and being one of these guys. You know? So I think it's a great uh, present and, and, and I was so honored and so happy to qualify because also it was, I did qualify on the last uh, week in, in Bercy because I was very close from being in and being out. So I did semifinals, and at the end I could go in. So uh, it was a huge experience, and I will always remember. Mm-hmm. And for you, that season to win that Masters event in Hamburg, you knock off David Ferrer in, I believe, the quarterfinals, Anchich in the semis, then get uh, the three out of five set win. Uh, I, I completely forget that there was an entire era of tennis where you know there were three out of five set Masters finals, and for you to get a title at a Masters event as well, um, you know what was working so well for you during that 2006-2007 stretch of time. Well, it was, I know, at the beginning of, of, of the year, I was working with an Argentinian coach that I was working the last two years. And he was very good on on giving me, like, a lot of passion of the sport, working, like, six, seven hours a day. And I was physically better. But the problem is that I was that good physically that when I was losing, it was killing myself mentally. So after two, three months of the year, I stopped with him. And I started being alone, uh, and I was just going with my physio. And physically, I was perfect, and I took that pressure off. And then I was uh, starting to play uh, great. So it helped me to, to get the balance of my mentally. Uh, and after two, three months later, I got a coach, and he was helping me also till the end of the of the year in a, in a good way. So I know I think it was a couple of things that it helped me, but obviously, uh, winning in Hamburg gave me a lot of confidence to go through all the season. Mm-hmm. And during that time period, there are you're part of a generation of excellent Spanish men's tennis, maybe the best generation in the country's history. It's guys like yourself and Fernando Verdasco, Feliciano Lopez, Nicolas Almagro, David Ferrer, obviously Rafa as well. Did it help you? Did it add more pressure on you to have your fellow countrymen alongside of you ascending the rankings at the same time? What was it like you know, to compete with your fellow generation of Spanish players? For me, obviously, uh, it doesn't matter to compete with Anchik or with uh, Ferrer. For me, it's the same. I prefer Ferrer being better because he's a friend of mine. But I mean, when I'm inside the court, it's an opponent that I try to win. It doesn't matter who it is. So 
what it helps the Spanish players is that we were a lot more, and when we were going to the tournament, we were a lot more with friends, talking, having dinners together, and it it gave us the chance to be better in a in a way of being outside of of our house, but being with friends, and and that helped us. But about of competence, uh, I think it was the same. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And you, you sort of talked about it there being with them. You had the opportunity to be a part of three different Davis Cup championship winning teams. Uh, you know, the team format is something I think with the additions of Labor Cup and World Team Tennis, we see more and more of in our sport. But what did those Davis Cup titles mean for your career? Did they have added significance to compared to maybe some of the things you accomplished on the single circuit? Each one of the Davis Cup was completely different. The first one, for example, I've been in all the four uh, ties, and it was amazing. And being on the final beating a USA in Sevilla with 27,000 people was something to remember. The other two, uh, on the second one, I only was at the first round, and then I was not there on the entire season. So it was okay. I win the Davis Cup, but it was not 100% mine. And then on the on the third one, I was on the third on, on the three first ties, and then on the final, I was not there. So it was like three quarters of happiness, no? But uh, that's what it is when you have a great team. That sometimes you are in, sometimes you are out, and that's what it is. Do you enjoy the team format as as opposed to you know just being you out there? Is that does it add any more thrill to competing? No, oh, it's lovely. We are there in a week. Uh, one week every two, three months, and together being uh, as, a, as a team with uh, not only the, the, the tennis players, but also the coaches, the physios, the doctors, the team of the Spanish Federation, which is amazing. And, and I know it's a different week, and, and, and we enjoy it so much. So it's, I think it's a great way of doing another type of tennis. Mm-hmm. Do you? I don't know if you are, have strong opinions one way or the other, but Davis Cup obviously undergoing some changes uh, in the format. They're playing it all in that final week. Is that something you're in favor of? Did you or did you prefer the way it was before? I think that before it was good, but but the ITF they were not treating the players the way they they should because uh, there was nearly no prize money. They were having all the benefits. The first two ties, the top 20 guys that were only two or three playing, the others not because they were preferring the calendar. And then once they were in semifinals, they were playing. So there was a lot of things that they were not good for for the players to play. So I think to have a change was great. The way it changed, uh, it's not going to be the same Davis Cup as it was. But I think we have to give a little bit of time to that competition and to see how it works. But Obviously, when you play in Davis Cup in your hometown, uh, it's amazing. It's full of the crowd there. And now, if you are playing in Madrid, uh, no, Argentina, USA is not the same as it, if it was in Argentina or in USA. So it's going to be like a tennis tournament, but not what it was Davis Cup. But I think that uh, we have to thank the guys that they are running it, Osmos and JRPK and all of the team. Uh, because they are putting a lot of effort, a lot of money to try to build a stronger competition. And we'll see what happens in a two or three years' uh, view, but I hope it's going to be great. 
Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm sure it was great to see your fellow countrymen winning this past year, this inaugural event. That's obviously a cool thing. And um, I do want to get back to your career, though, because, you, again, you've accomplished some amazing things. Let's go to 2013 at the French Open. You were the only player in history to, to come back from two sets to love down in three consecutive matches. You did it against Sizzling, against Monfils, against El Magro. What does it take physically to do that in three straight matches, three out of five sets? How draining, you know, I know you lost, I think, that quarterfinal in straights to David Ferrer, but at that point, was it just an empty tank? You know, what did it take to pull off those comebacks consecutively? Well, the first one, it was, let's say, not easy, but it was okay. Because uh, at the begin- at the middle of the third set, I saw that I was going to win the match. Because uh, tactically and physically, I-, I-, I saw that I was much, much better than the other, than Sizzling. And the, the, po- the moment the-, the match turned around, I-, I was not scared at all of the match. So that one, it was okay. I physically, I, I finished pretty good. The second one against Monfils, that was amazing. Uh, I don't know. It was a, a full battle uh, because against Gael, you know that if, if you are not 100% every single point trying to come back, he's going to beat you. And in some of the sets, it was very tough. Also. So it was an amazing match and, and the crowd was supporting him. Physically, it was... Uh, uh, and I was empty for sure at the end. And then the one in, with Almagro as well. But once you are there in the, in the match, uh, both of the players you are in the same situation, even if it's one set for one or one set for the other. Uh, the tongue is, is, is full or empty, more or less equal. No, It's mentally the, the one that is, is going to take you the advantage. And I think that mentally I was very, very strong during that moment of my career. And for me, it doesn't matter to play three hours before. I was... Just gonna go for each point, and and I know I uh, I tried and I did it, and and after in four finals, like you said, I was completely destroyed. Is that a record you are aware of holding? You're the only guy to come back from two sets to love down in three straight matches. Is that something you take pride in? Well, obviously the people they they say that it was like a record, and I'm proud of this, but I'm more proud of the way the crowd in. In Roland Garros, support me after beating Monfils, for example. Susan Langland, all the all the people stand up, uh, clapping my name. That was uh, something I will never forget. As a fan, I've never been to the French Open, but I always think they have the best crowds, or certainly the most loud, the most engaged fan base. Is that fair? I don't think it's the louder crowd. I think that is the crowd that they know a lot more tennis about the rest mm-hmm. of the world. They are more, uh, I don't know, um, uh, I don't know how to, to say it, that it's, they know a lot more about tennis, so they respect a lot more the, the players each time. If you go to US Open, I, I think it's the louder crowd. This is amazing when you are there and they support you, they scream, it's it's, it's better atmosphere for sure. And then Wimbledon, it's also, they know a lot about tennis, but they are more quiet, it's more respectful. But... But I know all the crowds are different. Uh, for me, I I really like the US Open crowd because it's it's more for me. It's more they are cheering more for the crowd for the players. They they are a lot more supporting the sport. Uh, maybe they don't know tennis uh, that much, uh, but but I know I love 
when when you see a lot of people screaming, jumping, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you bring up the U.S. Open. Uh, that 2013 season, to stick with it, you make the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open. I believe you had made something like seven fourth rounds there uh, in the years before that. And, you know, quarterfinal, fourth round, it's only a one-round difference. But for you to reach the quarterfinal stage uh, at that year, that season, did it feel a little bit extra? Did it mean that much more? Well, for me, in the U.S. Open, I always played very good. I like the... The place, I like the surface, and I, I was confident there. And obviously making quarterfinals is something amazing, especially because I beat Roger Federer there on that fourth, third round or fourth round. And yeah, it was something different, no? but but anyway, I don't know, I feel, I, I was feeling pretty good there in the US Open always. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. That's what I want to to play Roger Federer. Uh, you know, I'm sure that was a center court match to beat him no, in no, straight but- sets. Armstrong. It was on Armstrong. <clears throat> um, so, but for you to beat him on that stage in that match, is that one of those you know moments in your career that sticks out? Yeah, for sure. Obviously, it's to beat Roger Federer in I don't know in in a two fifty something special. Obviously, because it's the best play in the world right now. Uh, but to beat him in a U.S. Open, which is the his favorite place or the second favorite place for him. In the Grand Slam, in, in five sets, it's it's more special. And obviously, it was third or fourth round. And he didn't want to, to lose at all. He was so pissed. And I, I was just doing the things right on, on, on the right moment. And, and the match was going to me, going to me, going to me. And at the end, I won him in, in, in three straight sets, which is something I, I couldn't believe. Mm-hmm. And your career happened alongside of the ascension of Roger Federer, of Rafa, and then Novak. You've got to see it all up close. You know, what is it like for you, or just to, to have them at the top of the game, setting the standard and just reaching a level that maybe tennis has never reached before? What does that do for the men's game? What does that do for you as a competitor who's trying to keep up with those guys? For me, Federer and Nadal uh, helps tennis help tennis to be one of the strongest games uh, in the world, sports in the world. Because the, the rivalry they had is, is something great. Because they are... One is, I don't know, let's say he dresses perfectly and the other with the no shirts with no sleeves. One with the long hair, the other perfectly with the headband. Uh, one Wilson, the other Babolat. One Spanish, very passionate. The other Swiss, very calm. And this is something is a, a, a great rivality. And also, they are both amazing with the crowd, with the fans, with the media, with the sponsors. And it, it grows the tennis so much on, on the last couple of, of years or last uh, decade of tennis. So for the rest of the players, uh, it, it was amazing. Without them, tennis wouldn't be what, what it is right now. Hopefully, the day they are gone, uh, tennis is going to keep being the same because for me Novak is it can be the best of all time also because in three four years maybe he can win more Grand Slams of, than the others but it's not going to be Roger Federer or, or Rafael Nadal the way they they grow the sport I think it's it's a different different image it's a different way of doing it. 
Mm-hmm. No, I feel like at this point, you and Roger can have a competition to try and not retire first. I mean, at the, you know, you've both been there since the late 90s, and you, that that's the standard set. So it, you know, I, my whole life, I was born 1995. I've always seen Roger Federer, Rafa, Tommy Robredo in the draws. So, uh, you know, don't leave me anytime soon. And, you know, you brought up those guys. I'm curious because you also saw, you know, Andy Murray uh, and his rise and the, the strength of his career. And in terms of game planning for them and, ex, you know, what sort of challenge you would expected did you consider game planning for a Murray as the, the same level of difficulty as it was to prepare for a Djokovic a Federer or Nadal well we, we are talking about the fourth best player that we had on our decade so it's obviously it was amazing to play Andy and it was very very difficult but uh, obviously um, on that time Roger and, and Rafa they were the best ones and then it was Novak very close, and then Andy. Sometimes he was better than Djokovic, sometimes he was better than the others, but he was always over there, and obviously, um, when you prepare with some guys like, like them, also there was Berdich, it was Rodic, it was a lot of players, uh, they were amazing players. It was not that that much different between the, the third player in the world and the fifth or the seventh or the tenth, so they were a great level, and to prepare to play against one of them, you had to be great to, to try to beat them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, the reason I bring up Andy Murray, one of my favorite moments as a tennis fan, 2014 Valencia final, 3-6-7-6-7-6, you're both physically drained, you go up to the net and you give him the double bird. And it's just one of those moments you finally get to see, you know, tennis personalities shine through. You know, was that FU a product of him beating you two straight finals? Was it just you were drained? Uh, give me the rundown behind that scene. Really, I don't know why I did that. Uh, I was completely destroyed uh, physically. Uh, we, we played one of the best matches I, I ever played for sure, or, or and then I ever saw on TV because the way of we played, the rhythm of the game, the, the passion we put on, the physically what we did there, it was amazing and. I know it's one of that matches that both of us deserve to win. And in tennis, un- unlikely, it's, it's, there is no chance. It has to be one winner and one loser. And uh, at, at the end, uh, I, I went to the net. I'm a good friend of, of, with Andy. And it was a way of saying, uh, come on, uh, you, you beat me again. So, and, and we were there. Uh, I know we gave a, a hug, both of us together. And we were together in the locker room. We fly together with his private plane to Paris the same night. And uh, I know it was a. I think it was like a fight of a, like a boxing match. So you see them, they they kill each other, and at the end they give a hug to each other. No? So it was a couple of of a moment like this that we both were going for everything, and at the end that's what the way it finished. No, but I know I think it. Every time I remember that match, I'm so proud of the way I played the full match. There is no one regret I can do it to myself. So uh, that day, I was unlucky. Yeah, no, it was one of the highest levels of play I've ever seen, certainly in a two out of three set match. And yeah, it was so refreshing to see that sort of intimacy between the two of you. And you sort of talked about this when I asked you about your fellow generation of Spanish tennis players. But, you know, spending as long as you have on the tour... 
would you say the majority of your friends are fellow professional tennis players? How tight knit of a community is the professional tennis world? Because I imagine, you know, those are the guys you're seeing week in, week out, maybe even more than your family, than your friends from, you know, back home. Yeah, but it's different. At the end, uh, I know when we say friends, I don't know. For me, I can count them with the hand of my, with one of my hands. So, uh, friend for me is someone that, uh, if you have something, he's gonna go for you and he's gonna be there 100% of the times. So, all of the guys that I met on the tennis world, they are great uh, guys that I, I was with them and I enjoyed a lot of moments with them. They enjoyed a lot of moments with me, but not all of them are friends. You know, it's like uh, I have. Uh, uh, I know I'm a good guy. I'm very good with uh, with Lopez. That's my generation. David Ferrer, Ganoyes, uh, a lot of guys like this. But uh, but I don't talk to them every every week. So when I see them, I hug them. We go for dinner. And sometimes during the year we go for dinner, whatever. But but it's it's not one of these guys that I found with my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's a really interesting perspective to hear because, yeah, I imagine, uh, again, you see them all the time, but they are also your competitors. So it's a really interesting thought. I do have a final series of, you know, sort of rapid fire questions to throw at you to end today's podcast. A bunch of different things, uh, rapid in terms of I'm going to be asking a bunch of different questions. Take as long as you want with your response. Does that work for you? Yeah, it's okay. All right, let's do it. Uh, so the first one to you, and, you know, uh, as you are coming up the ranks and uh, performing your own game, whose game style did you try to emulate the most? No one. I, I didn't was. I was not focused to no one. I was just playing my game. Mm-hmm. You, you, you didn't. You know, you never had a style. There's a guy when you're watching video, you're like, no, no I, I want to take tapes from him. That's not you. No. That's interesting. What about who was the most difficult opponent for you to face during your career? I think uh, Rafa Nadal was one of the stronger ones. The, the way that the, the ball was coming, the, the the spin he was giving to the balls, and the way that uh, you had to be the full game, hundred uh, percent focus, because if not, he will come back. Uh, he was the, the stronger one for sure. Plus, a lefty did the one-handed backhand, right? It has to be annoying. You're just like again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. Um, how about who was the guy that you know you played a bunch that you thought you actually matched up best with? That you were like, you know what? I, I you know, it could be a top-ranked guy, it could be someone else. Where you're like, I like this matchup. Uh, Bjorkman, Santoro, Safin. Mm-hmm. I'm noticing a trend there. Shot makers. Well, no, I don't know. It, it's different styles, but I don't know. They were guys that I, I like to play against. Mm-hmm. For sure. What about for you? Uh, and again, these are a little different. The most fun for you to hang out with in the locker room? Uh, I don't know. I hung out a lot with Ferrero, with Ferrer, uh, with Mark Lopez with Marcel I know it's, it's good I'm a good fan also of, of Paez I know mm-hmm. what about the player you avoided in the locker room they just never showered they're just annoying who is the guy you're like oh, stay away from uh, I know there is none 
what I always say, what I always say is like, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that you really don't really know them, and because of the language, because of the, uh, I don't know, there is a lot of players that I never played against. There's a lot of players that, I know, a guy from Slovenia, maybe. Um, I never met for dinner, I never met for a, an interview, I never met for... And I don't know them really much. I go to the locker room, I say hello, say hello, but then I don't really get into thoughts, you know, and, and sometimes uh, you don't know that guy, but I don't know. I, I, I'm not that type of guy that I was hitting somebody, so I was okay. No, no, that's completely fair. Uh, did you ever play a match on carpet? Yes, of course. Okay, so two questions is, A, what is that experience like? And B, why was it ever considered a good idea to play on carpet? Because that just sounds miserable to me. Well, there is a different type of carpet. There is a really, really fast ones and there is normal ones. And before, at the beginning of my career, if you wanted to play Milano, if you wanted to play Bercy, it was in carpet. So we were there and playing and yeah, it was okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's not my favorite surface, but anyway, it's it's a way we, we played before on the indoor tournament. Could you slide on it? Was it you know easy to move, or what would you say the surface it's most comparable to? Depends. There is the different type of carpets. If it's a new one, it's tough to slide. If it's an old one, you can slide one meter. Uh, sometimes it's sticky to the shoe, sometimes not. Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's fair. I just like I can't even imagine playing on carpet, but maybe that's just me. Um, the idea of it. All right, again, uh, home stretch here. Four questions. Uh, I sort of asked you about the team style events, and I'm sure you're aware of things like world team tennis around the globe. There are all of those opportunities. Do you see there ever being a world where tennis goes in a direction of incorporating more team events, or do you see the two uh, the two are staying, you know, pretty individual based? I don't know. Last year I, I was very close to go to go team tennis, and I, and I really want to go. But uh, this year maybe if they do it, I can go, and it's, it's something I really want to try once because I hear a lot of great news from that and. I think it's it's good to see to see competitions like that. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Um, you you talked about this a little bit earlier in this stage of how the game has changed, but in your time, again, you, your career started in the '90s. It spanned four decades, which that's freaking awesome. Uh, how has the game changed, technology-wise, court speed-wise? You know, during your time in the sport. I think physically, the players are stronger right now. As I said before, the walls are heavier and the players, they can hit harder and they don't meet at all. And it changes the, the, the game completely. But um, the rest, I think that tactically the players now are worse than before. Because before to win a point, you had to be tactically perfect. Now you just hit the forehand and backhand and you can make a win down the line or whatever. But uh, yeah, I think that's the, the, the major change the, the physically. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, another record for you. 17-5 in five, in five set matches, highest win percentage in ATP Tour history. Is that something you are aware of? And any talk of changing the majors from two to th- from three out of five to two to three sets, is that something you're against? 
Wow, it's a tough question. Uh, I think to play a major, the best of five sets, it makes it more difficult to, to win it. And I think it's good. Uh, I think it's good to play the best of five sets. But anyway, uh, I will always do tablet on the fifth set for sure. I will skip the the, the match of uh, Wimbledon with uh, Isner Mahout for sure. And I know I like to play five sets because uh, physically, normally it was good, mentally it was strong, and and I really wanted to go as as long as it was a five set uh, match. But, but anyway, I know it's sometimes it's four hours and it's difficult to to be physically good uh, the entire moment. Mm-hmm. Another, this is an odd one, but you played with a Dunlop racket for the majority of your career. I was a big Dunlop racket fan. Uh, why did you stick with the product for as long as you did? Well, when you have a relationship with the brand and everything goes good, uh, you just keep going. You don't want to make a change. And, and then I changed uh, two years ago because uh, I thought I needed um, something that helped me a little bit better and also Dunlop on that moment they were not doing their best products and and I, and I need to change and now I think they are doing great again so I'm happy for them but but now I mean I'm with Wilson which it's a great brand mm-hmm. okay last question for you again one of the few players in ATP or WTA history whose career has spanned four different decades uh, I, I'm sure you want to get back on tour this year, uh, should it happen. And, of course, uh, you know, hopefully it will. But for you, when will you retire? What, you know, what has to happen? What sequence of events? I don't know. The, the no. day I have something Sorry. that it be the same motivation than what I have right now for tennis. Mm-hmm. And you still love the sport. Of course, if not, I will not be doing it. <laughs> no, I love it. Wait, it, it. It okay. This is just a bonus one. Any? Is it more thrilling? I feel like the on-the-run one-handed backhand pass has to be the most thrilling feeling. Just as a tennis player, when you nail one of those, it looks the coolest. Uh, is there any truth to that? If, it's, if there is what, the your one-handed backhand passing shot. When it lands in, to me, that would be my favorite shot to hit of of any in my arsenal. Well, obviously, when when you are running and and you have only one chance to to make the point, is when you have to hit as hard as you can and, and in the best direction. And obviously, it's one of the the nicest parts of the game. But uh, I prefer to win the point without running at that much and with uh, an impossible passing shot. No, I prefer to make a serve and a forehand and, and finish the point quicker. <laughs> Spoken like a true veteran. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Stay okay. safe, stay healthy, and you know, know that there's always a spot for you on our show. Thank you very much, and I hope the same for you and all the, the guys that are feeling it. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Hope you enjoyed my conversation with former world number five, Tommy Robredo, that Tommy is still on the tour is obviously such an incredible accomplishment, and we are so grateful to him that he took the time to chat with us. Uh, you know, he's, he's clearly very serious about his tennis. He's dedicated to his craft. You know, I got the chance to see his jawline during this because we were on Skype doing the interview, and that's a guy who's certainly still in shape, certainly uh, going to play so as at least another year of tennis in him the question is will we get back to tennis during this 2020 season and of course that's a conversation we are having day in day out on our mini break podcast your daily podcast for the biggest storylines results and controversies from the tennis world we've had guests like John Wertheim Ben Rothenberg uh, whom I'm missing Steve Weissman Mark Lucero and countless others uh, join us on the pod to talk about coronavirus its impact on tennis we also talked to current WTA Player Council member Christy on to talk about what the WTA Player Council is, uh, what their approach to this will be, how they can provide the maximum amount of players with help as they can. And of course, we talked to Paul Anacone and so much more. So if you've missed any of those podcasts on the mini break feed, on this feed, on the Great Shot podcast feed, be sure to go like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends, leave a little comment on there. Let us know what you think. If you think some of my jokes didn't hit in this joke uh, in this podcast, just let me know. That happens from time to time, and, you know, you swing and a miss. That's why you keep stepping up to the plate no matter what. But, you know, again, so grateful for Tommy Robredo taking the time to chat with us. So grateful, as always, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f- of an editing job to do, as they always uh, continue uh, to do day in, day out. So grateful for them. And, <clears throat> Of course, also grateful for all of you listeners who take the time to listen to these podcasts, to comment to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever platform it may be uh, for, you know, just the positive reaction or even the constructive criticism. We appreciate it all at a time like this. It means the mo- the world to us. And of course, again, if we can provide any of you just a little bit of a break, a little bit of a distraction from the daily stresses we are all facing, then we will continue to be doing our job here at Cracked Rackets. And again, you missed any of the content, crackedrackets.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at crackedrackets. You want to message me directly at Great Shot Pod. We would love to hear it. But with that in mind, for super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for our wonderful guests, ATP number five, Tommy Robredo, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. That's another Cracked Interviews, folks, and we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.